Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, good morning again. Um, If we haven't met, um, or if we have, uh, my name is Taylor Leachman. I'm uh, the planting pastor here at Advent, and um, uh, wanted to remind us kind of every uh, few weeks, um, we put pew Bibles in the rows, um, and uh, part of why we want to do that also is we want for you all to have a Bible, so if you don't have a Bible, um, feel free to just take it. Um, it's yours. Um, and uh, you don't need to tell anyone. Um, that's just a gift from Advent to you um, because we think it's important for you to be able to have one and to read. Um, and the other reason is we don't want to, like, yes, we, we read a lot of scripture um, in our service. Um, and so because we do it in bite sized chunks, it can be tempting to see, like, okay, the scriptures are kind of cut off from one another. Um, but actually, it's really important to view it um, in the context of the whole. And so in many ways, part of why we wanted to bring the Pew Bibles out and say, like, please turn to page two or whatever, is to realize that we're not just like splicing up the Bible and creating a Thomas Jefferson version of the Bible. Um, if you all are familiar with that reference, he cut out a lot of what he didn't like. But we're actually trying to say, no, we're reading... And focusing on a particular section, but it comes to us as a part of God's whole word. Um, and so this week we're back in our series called The Origin Story, um, which is uh, meant to be a series that is helping us answer the questions of why our world is like it is, both this kind of blend of beautiful and broken and heartbreaking, right? Why do we struggle? What is our purpose? Why do relationships and work feel so fulfilling and yet hard at the same time? Two weeks ago, we dealt with temptation in the very beginnings of Genesis chapter 3, right? The temptation of Adam and Eve uh, with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, And we talked about how their temptation is paradigmatic of our own temptation, Right? Rarely do we fall for just like outright lies, um, but rather we, we get the, the, when the truth is sort of twisted to us by others or maybe even by us, that is what causes us to be tempted um, uh, to, to flee, uh, to flee into uh, the things that Jackie even was talking about. Right? We begin to pay attention to all the wrong things instead of God. We begin to trust in ourselves. We begin to trust outside voices. Um, and we want to be the ones who decide what is right and what is good, right? To be the judge of good and evil. Um, and this week we're going to continue in Genesis 3. And probably you've noticed, because uh, I think we've absolutely hammered the theme in the liturgy thus far, we're going to be talking about Adam and Eve's hiding and God's seeking of them. Um, right? And so... Uh, We're going to read a little bit of the same section that we read uh, two weeks ago because I wanted to give us more context. Um, And as we read, I want you to pay attention to Adam and Eve's reactions. Pay attention to how they react to one another and how they interact and react uh, to God. So if you would, please turn to page two um, in the Pew Bible as we read Genesis 
chapter 3. I'm going to begin with verse 6, and we'll read through 15. So when the woman, that being Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Father, we are grateful, um, and we pray, Father, that um, as we consider your word together, uh, that um, you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and we pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Um, One of my favorite things uh, is watching very young children play hide-and-seek, right, Um, because many of them haven't quite learned that just because they can't see you doesn't mean that you can't see them, right? Um, so they hide in obvious places where you can see their feet sticking out, uh, from under, you know, the drapes, or, uh, if they're really young, they'll maybe just like do this and think that because they're covering their face that you can't see them or they can't contain their excitement of their hiding place. And so despite the fact that they actually are hiding somewhere, there's almost this like radar, like beacon upon them to where you can hide them or find them, um, So their hiding is incredibly ineffective, right? Um, And I bring that up because we live in an almost constant state of hiding, right? Hiding the parts about ourselves that we really don't like that much, um, that maybe we think are wrong, uh, the things that we're ashamed of. Like uh, It can be things about our body, maybe even, that we're ashamed of. I know, for example, I probably even still do have bad posture because I was a fully grown 13 year old who had a best friend who was four foot five at the time. Um, and I did not like any 13 year old. I didn't want to stand out. Right. And so I would slump over, um, constantly shrink my shoulders and look down. Right? I wanted to hide, but it can be far more than the aspects of our body that we don't like about ourselves. It can be the things that we think we're bad at. Right, so we don't want to try to do new things that might be very vulnerable for us, or at least we don't try to do those new things in public. Or we hide our thoughts or our likes because we get a little bit nervous that maybe we're the strange ones, 
right? Maybe if I let everyone know that I'm interested in this or that I like this or that I think this, then I won't be in relationship with them anymore. We hide those things that we're ashamed of because we want to be loved and respected by others. We're not sure what they might condemn. But not only that, we hide the parts about ourselves that we know are wrong. In other words, the bad things that we've done or failed to do, right? The bad things that we say or think, right? So for example, maybe how have you handled that piece of gossip that you accidentally shared about an acquaintance, a coworker or a friend, and when they found out that you spread it, that you told someone else and made them look bad, they confront you. They ask you if you had anything to do with it, even though they don't have any proof. I I, I know this is a very specific scenario I'm setting up, but I would imagine we have all done it. In the case where they don't have any proof, do you own it? Or do you squirm and try to make yourself out to be maybe the hero of the story or uh, try to make yourself look far better than you do? In other words, do you hide from it? Genesis 3 moves from a story of temptation to to the hiding and consequences of what Adam and Eve are doing here. As we see in these verses, Adam and Eve, they're hiding. They're literally hiding from God behind trees, and they're figuratively hiding from him when he confronts them to ask what happened. Their act of, of disobeying God has put a strain on their relationship. Um, and for them, it feels much, much worse to own up to what they've actually done, right? They don't want to do that, so they'd rather hide. And that is what I want to talk about this morning, our hiding and God's seeking, because that is the story of the Bible, actually. Um, that is our story. And we're a people who hide um, from God and others, but in his grace, he comes after us. He seeks us, and he makes it so that we no longer need to feel like we're supposed to hide. So let's talk about those things this morning. That's going to be our two points. Um, Our hiding and God's seeking. So first, our hiding. There's a lot of different ways uh, that we can hide from God, and we see here in this story that Adam and Eve are pretty much doing all of them. Um, Like them, we hide from being in relationship with him from being known by him, from regularly actually being with him. So Adam and Eve both eat of the tree that they were commanded not to eat of. And like all of us maybe who, you know, who snuck sweets um, when we were told not to, that disobedience, while not being as big of a thing, begins to, to snowball on them. Right? And it creates an even bigger problem. Because their guilt for doing the wrong things and their shame for now believing that they are wrong creates this inner turmoil. Though things likely would have gone better had they just immediately confessed and repented, their turmoil and their stress about their sin causes them to hide. First, they hide from each other. They're naked, but for the first time they feel shame about their nakedness. In front of each other, their sin begins to drive this wedge between them, destroying their intimacy, right? And so when disobedience and sin creeps in, we begin to distrust one another, right? My sinful vulnerabilities make me nervous around you. 
Right? If I'm trying to hide them, or maybe even especially if somehow you actually know about them, because what if you tell on me? Um, what if my sin is worse than your sin, and now all of a sudden we're in this really weird circumstance where our relationship is going to be in turmoil because of it? So we cover it up, and they cover themselves physically with fig leaves. But they, f- they do it figuratively here as well. They cover themselves up from one another because they don't want even their spouses to know the inner turmoil that they're feeling here in their sinful heart. But they don't just hide from each other. They hide from God as well. Look at verse 8. It says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Right, this doesn't you know, mean that literally God has legs and goes walking. Um, but rather, this is a way of talking about God's presence with Adam and Eve in this temple garden that we talked about in Genesis chapter 1. This is God's temple garden, where God is and where they are and where they meet with him and commune with him. He's regularly present there. And this is a, a, a normal occurrence and that's why it's a big deal that Adam and Eve actually run and hide from him. They aren't running from the police who are never around unless you have done something wrong, right? They're running, not running from the principal of the school who you go to only when you have misbehaved. They are running from their loving father who is with them all of the time. They're running because they haven't lived as they were commanded to do. And they're running because they still don't seem to want to live in relationship with him, even though they know what his character is like. Because in order to be made right with God again, they have to confess what they've done. They have to share it with him. They don't want to do it. Right? And that is our motivation, to run from him as well. We don't want to feel bad for what we've done or what we've not done. We know that around the Lord, we have to actually answer for it. So we hide. We can hide from him in the things of this world. Um, We can hide in, in some good things like our work, our hobbies, maybe even some bad things like our addictions or our creature comforts that become addictions. All too often looking to them for comfort or numbing so that we don't have to feel that ache that we feel in this relationship that's gone wrong. Or we can hide from him actually in our religion. And when I say that, I mean in our religious practice of Christianity. We can hide from him in order to try um, and give us enough time maybe to, to fix our mess, right? Where like, like when I was a kid, I would, I would play rough um, uh, with my little sister. I only had sisters. So I would play rough with my sister. Somehow I'd end up making her cry as we were playing sports. Um, and I knew I was going to get in trouble unless I could make her laugh between the time that she was crying and before my parents actually figured it out, right? Then, and only then, would I not get in trouble, right? If I had enough time to fix it, uh, nothing would happen. So we try to fix our mess in front of God. I'm not really a bad or sinful person or disobedient person because, yeah, though I've gossiped or coveted or walked past a thousand of my neighbors who need help along the side of the road, I I read my Bible, I pray, I, 
I tithe, I, I do these things, I, I, I serve on the board of a nonprofit. The good I do definitely outweighs the bad. That's the way that we kind of view it. We can hide because uh, we can hide behind those good things trying to fix our mess before we come to God. Or we can actually hide from Him in our religious activity as well. Where we want, uh, where we can desire to have religious experiences rather than be with the Lord. Where we, we do worship services, prayer retreats, revivals, Christian radio stations, all the while not actually allowing ourselves to know God or be known. We can hide from Him in our theological study. I know I have done this. Where we use knowing more about God. Um, as a substitute to forsake actually knowing Him and being known by Him. We can do it in our mission and in our service, where we do all of these things in His name, and yet, like Matthew 7, where Jesus says, I never knew you, because we weren't actually going to Him in relationship. So we hide from God like Adam and Eve. We do so in order to either maintain our independence or to keep from feeling this ickiness or that blah that we feel about our relationship with him. That's the technical term, the blah. Um, And so Adam and Eve are hiding, right, quite poorly, but they're hiding nonetheless. Ironically, the catalyst for them hiding is that Adam and Eve heard God coming because in Hebrew the word for hearing is the same word for obeying. Right, so there's this irony that's being set up here that because of their disobedience, because of their lack of listening to God's commandment to not eat of the tree uh, that, they were, that they actually ate of, that now they're afraid when they hear him coming. In the past, they were delighted to hear God coming. Right, they were delighted to obey God. It's that difference um, of, of being in good relationship with your, with your parent who you, when you hear him come home, like, Daddy's home, mommy's home, versus when you're in trouble. Daddy's home, you know, mommy's home, right? There's that fear versus that excitement. So now they're fearful. No longer are they in a faith-filled, intimate relationship with the Lord, but they are fearful of him. And as they act out of fear, they now do the wrong things. They run and they hide in the trees. And as God calls out to them, they continue to act in fear And not faith. Though they know his voice and know his character, they still don't act out of faith. So God actually goes to them where they're hiding. God draws them out and they begin, he begins to talk to them. Um, So Adam tells God that he hid himself because he was naked. And God asks in verse 11, knowing the answer, but we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. He says, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And rather than answer in faith, Adam answers in fear. He doesn't own up to his disobedience. He tells this sort of slanted story of the truth to make himself look better. He hides behind a partial truth um, that seeks to kind of muddy the reality of what he had done. Although he does actually confess to the Lord that he ate the fruit that God told him not to eat, that's not what he leads with. He leads with the woman whom you put here with uh, whom, sorry, the woman who you gave to be with me gave me the fruit. Essentially, he says, you know, it's her fault. And not only that, 
but the woman that you created, right? The woman that you put here. So in essence, if it's not her fault, it's definitely your fault. I was doing pretty good until she came along. So when you made her, that's when everything went wrong, God. And it isn't just Adam who tells this slanted version of the truth. Eve tells a half-slanted truth as well. God turns to Eve in verse 13 and says, What is this that you have done? And although she confesses, like Adam, she buries the lead here. She says, It was the serpent that deceived me. Therefore I ate. Essentially, I wouldn't have eaten if it weren't for his lies. This is almost as clear of a biblical example of someone misappropriately saying saying it was the devil who made me do it, right? And further, by implication, Eve essentially says, I wouldn't have sinned if you, God, hadn't created such a crafty serpent to begin with. Oh man, do these half-truths look familiar. How often do we craft our stories with enough slanted truth to make ourselves the actual victims of the story? We do this to our friends, to our our co-workers, to our family. Sort of like, you know, yeah, I said that really mean thing to you, but it's because you were ignoring me. Um, I shouldn't have spent all of our money, but I was doing it for you. Or I totally forgot to do that thing I promised you I would do, but you forgot to remind me. Uh, maybe we're not even blaming others, but we're, we're not willing to take full ownership for our action either. Um, how many of you all have seen the meme of I'm, uh, uh, of, I'm sorry I'm late, I didn't want to come, right? <laughs> we don't ever say that. We say, I'm sorry I'm late, and then we make up some reason. When in reality, maybe some of it is we didn't want to come. And that's why we were, you know, piddling around until the time got away from us. Or we can craft the story in such a way that we come off looking like a hero for our sin. You know, I'm, I'm not going to tell my wife about that huge mistake I made on a work trip uh, a month ago. She's been going through too much right now. It would only break her heart if I told her the truth. So I'm just going to kind of hold on to it a little bit. Because in reality, I'm actually protecting her. We hide from each other. We hide from God through our activity and through our half-truths, through our slanted version of events that we tell ourselves. Though we hide and though we run from Him, we have a God who pursues, who seeks, and who runs after us. So let's look at that part. God is present in the garden, and he calls out to Adam, and he says, where are you? He's not asking because he doesn't know. He's asking because he wants to give his children a chance to confess. He's pursuing them, and he's initiating the reconciliation process by offering this very clear opportunity for them to confess. So he he isn't accusing here. This isn't like Buzz at the end of Home Alone where he's like, Kevin! What did you do to my room? Right? You know, where it's obvious that there's judgment and there is punishment that is coming. No, God is seeking them with patience, finding them where they're hiding and drawing them out. And yet they don't confess. As one commentator puts it, in their telling distorted truths, they are demonstrating more of an allegiance to the serpent who distorts all truth. Yet God is patient. Each time they shift the blame, he moves as a righteous judge, 
patiently and kindly questioning them and asking Right? Even though they are culpable for their own disobedience, even though it is their fault. This sort of a side note here, we are always responsible for our own sin. Right? Although our parents may be blameworthy um, you know, for raising us or in, in a particular way um, with struggle and pain and trauma, our sin is our sin. Um, it isn't the driver in front of you who made you scream and cuss. Um, It isn't the outfit that the woman wears that made you lust. It isn't the pressure your parents put on you that made you a workaholic or, um, or their nagging that makes you crave and worship affirmation. All of our sin and our disobedience is our sin, no matter the circumstances. Now that said, we live in a fallen world where the reasons that righteous that, that there are very valid reasons that righteous living is hard or harder based upon our circumstances right we live in a fallen world where families hurt each other and where sin patterns get repeated throughout generations but our sin is our sin and though adam and eve are culpable for their own sin god doesn't begin by condemning them which is amazing he first deals here with the serpent The passage tells us that God condemns the serpent to eat the dust all the days of his life, to live in humiliation. But then he goes a step farther. Even as he curses the serpent, he offers a blessing. This beautiful glimpse of, of, of a beautiful seed that will flower into the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This condemnation and judgment against the serpent is good news. It's good news of hope for all of humanity. The offspring of the serpent... Those who would follow the serpent's ways and be allegiant to him. So we're talking about Satan. We're talking about the rulers and the principalities of this age. We're talking about those who follow him. But the offspring of the serpent will be in this fight with the seed, with the promised child of the woman. Mankind will struggle with those principalities. But from the seed of Eve will come a champion. The first part of the verse explains the struggle against mankind and the forces of evil where there is this struggle. The offspring of the woman will struggle against the offspring of the serpent. But remember a couple weeks ago where we talked about this cosmic battle between good and evil. This isn't between equal and opposite forces. It's between the creator God, the one who created all things, right, and the devil and evil. Um, this isn't a fair fight. Because the next component of the passage contains this incredible promise. One of the woman's offspring will come in the future, and he won't just fight. um, He won't just fight the seed of the serpent. He will fight and destroy the serpent. He will destroy the effects of the serpent. This champion who will come is Jesus, right? The one whose name literally means the Lord saves. 
He is Jesus the Christ. So this passage helps us to see that though we live in a world marred by our own disobedience, though we live in a world where we, where the seed of the serpent is, is telling us distorted truths um, and we fall into them and it leads to further destruction and pain and though we're even now in this struggle, we are not left by God to try and fix the problem ourselves, to try and go make, uh, you know, make, make the, those whom we've harmed laugh before our Father gets angry at us. We're not left to try and fix it because we cannot fix it. It's not possible because God himself actually is doing something about it. He is sending a champion to fight the battle for us. To win the battle over evil, sin, distortion, lies, and even death itself. And what that means for you and me is that we don't need to hide. As he pursues us and as he finds us where we are hiding, if we reveal our full self to him, we're not condemned as we turn to him in faith. Right? In fact, as we trust in our champion, Jesus Christ, we are guaranteed to join him in victory. Where our sin is, is defeated, where disobedience is defeated, and where sin will be, I mean, where death will be ultimately defeated as well. So God seeks you and me, and he pursues us as well. And though our champion was wounded for our transgressions, as it talks about here, and as we see when we read the Gospels, he, Jesus, has actually struck a mortal blow against the serpent. And so as we conclude, um, I want to end with reminding us that all of our attempts at hiding are really no different than the toddler trying to hide and hide and seek. Right? We're just trying to put our hands over our face and say, God, you don't see me. Um, some of you know exactly what you're hiding from. Some of us know, you know, some of us actually don't know what we're hiding from. It's even hidden from us. But our Lord knows. He is aware. And in his grace, he is seeking you anyway. Pursuing you wherever you are and whatever you are hiding And he tells us that when we come out and when we come to him in faith and reveal it to him, that he will take it from us because he has defeated defeated it in Jesus Christ, our champion, to fight for us and and to actually win us as well. Would you all pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus. We thank you for the good news that you have sent a champion to fight for us, to win the battle over sin and death, though we want to try and feel as if we are are, um, capable of fighting the battles and trying to fix it all ourselves. Well, we know we can't. And we turn to you. We turn to Christ, who fights for us and who defeats our sin defeats the sin of this world, and defeats evil and death. We turn to him in faith and ask that he um, would redeem us. And pray all this in, in his name. Amen. Mm-hmm.